Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120, decimal 9. Uh, good night. In September 2014, a marine research vessel named the Go Phoenix sailed out of the port of Jakarta, Indonesia and headed south. The ship's destination was open ocean, three miles deep and a thousand miles from the nearest land. The ship was there to look for a missing plane in what would become the most expensive, the most technically challenging, and ultimately the most confounding marine search in history. One of the people involved in the search was a young Australian naval officer named Peter Waring. Hi everyone, I'm, I'm Peter Waring, and in 2014 I was a lieutenant in the Australian Navy, and in, it was about September of that year, I was seconded from my Navy job to the Australian Transport Safety Bureau to act as the Deputy Operations Manager for the search for MH370. Today Peter's out of the Navy and lives in London. He spoke with me during a recent visit to New York and told me about the challenge his team had faced. Nothing like it had ever been undertaken before. Nothing like it has ever been undertaken and may not ever be undertaken again. So we started with 60,000 square kilometers, roughly the size of Tasmania. I think probably in the ballpark of the size of Long Island, maybe slightly bigger. Yet it was an incredibly dynamic seafloor, ranging from about 2,000 to about 4,500 meters. So deep, 4,500 meters is very deep. But was it, this is just about the most remote part of the Earth's surface in terms of, of, of ocean. And it is famously rough. It is famously isolated. If you get hurt, it's six days from the nearest port, which at that point was, was Perth or Fremantle, which is a suburb of Perth. It, it is just not the place you want to be uh, if something bad happens. I, I think the best weather we were getting was Sea State 5, roughly, which is rough weather. That's, that's rough weather. You're seeing whitecaps everywhere. We're talking somewhere between 30, 40 knots of wind. But there, it was not uncommon to get up to, I think, maybe nudging Sea State 8, Sea State 9. That is really severe weather. That is perfect storm kind of weather. It is nasty. And, and there were a couple of instances that I can recall where the ships were, were really worried. The reason they were looking in this stretch was that after the plane had gone missing earlier that year, a satellite communications company called Inmarsat had recorded signals transmitted by one of the plane's automated systems. These signals didn't include any specific information about where the plane had gone. But by carefully examining certain characteristics of the signal, Inmarsat scientists had been able to derive a mathematical model that indicated where the plane had gone. Nothing like it had ever been tried, but Inmarsat was confident in the accuracy of their results. Everyone was very sure. There was a lot of belief that we were looking in the right place. The, 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 the crews that were going out there had a very high morale, and they were ready. Like, every day, this is the day we find it. In October of 2014, Go Phoenix was joined by another search vessel, the Fugro Discovery. In January, two more ships joined the search, the Fugro Equator and Fugro Supporter. By May, the ships had scanned the seabed of Inmarsat's designated search area in photographic detail, and not a trace of the plane had been found. Rather than throw in the towel, the Australian authorities in charge of the search decided to make the area bigger, twice as big. But it was really clear to me by about April, May of 2015, about the same time that the search area was doubled in size, that if that assumption was right, if, if all of our assumptions were right, probably should have found the aircraft by then. I asked to be moved, which the Navy by that stage was happy to do. 
You asked to be moved because you were frustrated. I asked to be moved because I was frustrated and I knew that they were looking in the wrong place. And I said that, you know, I was a little less filtered than before I peaked out, but I said to them when I left, you're not going to find it. And, and this was one of the times in my life that I was kind of unhappy to be right. But I couldn't read a news story about MH370 for about three years after that. I would feel it like an emotional, like someone had grabbed my innards and given them a squeeze. Anytime someone asked me about it, anytime I saw it on the news, anytime I saw a headline, it felt like something was clenching my stomach and I didn't want to know about it. Yeah, it, it, was, it was heartbreaking, to be perfectly honest. My name is Jeff Wise. I'm a New York-based private pilot and aviation journalist. I've been deeply invested in MH370 since March of 2014, when I was going on CNN multiple times a day to talk about the mysterious disappearance that, at that point, was a worldwide obsession. In the nine years since, I've dived deep into every aspect of the case, trying to understand where the search had gone off the rails. Not just why the plane had disappeared, but how had it so stubbornly resisted every effort to find it? How could it be that world-class scientists had been so sure that they knew what happened to the plane, yet had been proven wrong? What piece of the puzzle had they failed to take into account? A few years ago, I got involved in the production of a Netflix documentary series called MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. When it aired in 2023, it touched a nerve around the world. It was watched more than 100 million times in the first month. I thought that the producers had done a solid job of researching the ins and outs of a complicated case. But as I saw it, with only four hours of airtime, they'd barely been able to scratch the surface of what was really going on with the case. From the response that I got from viewers who reached out to me, it was clear that a lot of people had a lot of questions, and I wanted to answer them. I felt like Netflix had basically set the table for a satisfying meal, and now I wanted to serve that meal somehow. But how do you convey the intricacies of a deeply complicated and technical mystery to a broad audience in a way that's both easy to understand and, frankly, entertaining? Shortly after the show aired, a new media producer reached out to me with an idea that pretty much answered that question. My name is Andy Tarnoff. I'm the founder and publisher of On Milwaukee, an award-winning daily lifestyle magazine and media company based in, well, Milwaukee. Over the past 25 years, my staff and I have had the privilege of telling compelling stories, whether it be through the written word or through a podcast like this. I became interested in this story when it happened, and I followed it like everyone else did. Then I stopped paying attention. And I vaguely remember there being some stories about finding wreckage off the coast of Africa, and I figured that was that. But it did feel fishy to me that no bodies were ever found. After watching the documentary, I came to the conclusion that the most credible person talking about this is Jeff Wise. In this podcast series, we will take a deep dive into all these theories and more to separate fact from fiction. I was pretty interested to find out, Jeff, that you're not a conspiracy theorist. In fact, yeah. you're an anti-conspiracy theorist, but some people might say you're obsessed. People would say I'm obsessed. People would say I'm a conspiracy theorist, to be sure. That's even my friends were like, hey, Jeff, you're a conspiracy theorist. You'll be interested in this other story. I'm like, actually, can we just walk that back? Because I don't at all consider myself a conspiracy theorist. I actually consider myself a skeptic. I got my degree in biology at Harvard, and I've been a, sci a science writer, aviation journalist for quite a few years now. And I write about a variety of topics. And throughout the approach that I take, I think it's to be 
try to be careful with the facts, to try to assemble as complete an image of what's going on as possible. And I think that's how you have to approach every story. I have written about criminals and con artists and 'er ne'er-do-wells, and I've written about scientists doing incredible research, and I've written a lot about air crashes. And air crashes really are a model for how you try to get to the truth because air travel is a very serious business. Every time you get on a plane, you are putting your life in the hands of the airline and of the pilot and of the crew. And when planes crash, it's terrifying. I mean, people are afraid of flying. People don't want to soar through the air six miles high in an environment where they would suffocate if they were to, or freeze to death if they were to be out in the environment. It's a, and it's a crazy thing. The whole idea of flying is a crazy thing. And it's, it goes counter to our notion of what's possible. And so we have to reassure the public that this is safe. And when people do die, or other incidents, injuries arise, it is a matter of great sobriety to piece together the evidence and try to figure out as comprehensively and clearly as possible what occurred. Now, clearly that did not happen with MH370. A lot of money was spent, a lot of time was spent, and yet we don't know what happened. And so I feel like we don't need to just, it's really important that we don't take the kind of conspiracy theory approach and just run off um, with wild claims, but we have to take a sober, methodical approach. I think in today's world, people assume that there's no difference between investigative journalism and a conspiracy theory, but this is what you do for a living. You find the facts and you ask the questions and you source them. You're not just throwing out crazy ideas about what may or may not have happened to this plane. You're doing the work of a journalist, and that's a different thing than someone who is trying to advance an agenda or has possibly different motives than writing a great story. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are different lenses that we use to look at the world. There is the accident investigator. There is the investigative journalist. There is the average guy on the street who just has a kind of layman's interest in a topic. There is a scientific approach. There is the kind of private analyst approach. Maybe they're looking to see whether they should invest in a company or not. We live in a democracy. Everyone has a voice, but not everyone has the same degree of credibility. And how you maintain credibility, how you work towards truth is something that's very much up in the air right now. I would say that at this point in history, society-wide, we are suffering through what I call an epistemic crisis, by which I mean we are trying to figure out how we collectively as a society can try to understand what is true and what is not true and what decisions we should make based on those determinations. So to, 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 if you approach this, this mystery fresh and not having thought about it or heard much about it before, at a surface glance, it might seem like it's just, how did this plane crash? It's a simple mystery of did it, how, where did the plane go? And that's a valid point. That's a legitimately interesting question. But there are other questions that are wrapped up around it, such as how do we approach a mystery like this? What forms of evidence are valid and what forms of evidence are not valid? What is a conspiracy theory and what is a legitimate scientific hypothesis that just happens to fall outside what we would consider a normal sort of idea? Um, so when you reached out to me, we conversed a bit and I got quite excited about the idea of using this format, which I'm not really familiar with, but which I had become aware of as a possible way to delve into a topic that kind of really resists being told 
or being examined in any other way, frankly. As you mentioned, Netflix just came out with a three-part documentary television series that, that totals about four hours of runtime that I was involved in. I spent several years working on that. And I think they did a great job for four hours, but this is a very complicated and very technical case. And it requires unpacking. Yeah. And I think that as we've talked about, the medium of having a conversation lends itself to a different way of looking at this because you have a lot to say about this. You've written an excellent book that it's a quick read. I read it in just a few hours, but maybe that's more than or a different way than people want to consume this information. To me, a lot of this stuff is visual. A lot of it is interviews and seeing the person and talking to the person and asking questions lends itself to something different than what maybe you've done for CNN or what you've done in print. And I don't want to bury the lead too much here because we're going to have a lot to talk about over a long period of time. But just as a background, you're also a pilot, right? Yeah, I got my pilot's license back in 2002. So I've been flying for over 20 years. Recreationally, I fly Cessnas and Pipers and gliders. I've actually flown, a, I've been in the pilot seat of a number of aircraft. I actually have stick time in a Zeppelin. Oh, cool. I've flown in gyroplanes, World War II fighter planes, Soviet jets. So I love aviation. It's a really cool thing. But yeah, I've been doing it for a while and I have a level of interest that I think allows me to understand maybe at a somewhat different level what sort of the crucial issues are when you talk about a plane missing. And I think that's important because the democratization, as you said, of media and social media means everyone does have a voice and people can scream into the void and whether it be through comment sections or through tweets or through people starting their own blogs to, to the media consumer, those things might be equal, but it's important for people to realize that this is your career and you don't have a whole lot of financial gain in solving this mystery. It's your job to write great content about this and to uncover the truth. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, I, the charge is sometimes leveled against me that I'm just in it to make a buck to which I would say, I think what everyone needs to understand about journalism is that it is dying and that we're all starving. Okay. We are doing this much for like why teachers teach because we love it and we feel like it's important. Yeah. I would push back that journalism is dying, but I think journalism as we know it is in trouble. And I think that there's still great stuff out there and there's still people doing great work. You just got to cut through kind of the noise to, to get to the good stuff. And I'm hoping this does this. I think that MH370, if we do the full podcast that I envision and people listen to the full podcast that I envision, I hope to get across not only what happened to this plane, but the context in which that occurred. And I feel like it's important. I, as we've talked, you know what I, you've read my book, you know what I think about this. MH370 is about more than a missing plane. It's about more than the relatives who miss their loved ones. It's about more than aviation safety. It's historically important. I feel like th this will come to be seen as something upon which much hinges. And, and I feel like it's historically important for people to understand what is going on with this case. And so to, to really grapple with it, I think we need to not only talk about what we know about this case and what the evidence is for what happened to it, but we need to talk about how we talk about it. Because I feel like the number one thing that is, I think, evidently clear at this point, nine years, more than nine years now after the plane has disappeared, is that current efforts have failed. As you were talking about in the intro, 
They haven't found the plane. They don't have an explanation for what happened to the plane. I would say it's even worse than that. Not only have they failed, but we're not even paddling in the right direction. We're flailing wildly. We're sinking beneath the waves. We're, there is no hope for the current approach. We are not assembling a detailed picture of what might have happened and building outward from there. There is nothing constructive being done. I feel and I hope that by talking to you in a kind of patient, methodical, detailed way, we can make a fascinating journey through this story, but we can also assemble the armature of an absolutely essential historical event that we can then build upon. What everyone wants to know is, do you think we're ever going to find this plane? This is why we're talking right now. I mean, to me, because when are we going to get there? Says the kids from the backseat. We're never going to get there if we don't pull out of the driveway. We haven't even started. Yeah. You and me talking right now, to my mind, is the beginning of getting on the road because we have to deal with the evidence. We have right. to take the time to go through A, B, C, D, E. What do we know about this case? What do we know? How can you solve a murder mystery if you can't talk about what the evidence is? And people, but what's problematic is that, as we've said before, this is democracy. Everyone's allowed to speak up. And unfortunately, the, the, the careful, considered approach to trying to solve this mystery has been drowned out by a hubbub of voices of people saying, oh, I have this piece of evidence. I'm going to pontificate on it. This is what I think it means, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my friend is a pilot. He says that he thinks it's this. Oh, I have a guy who knows a guy at the NTSB and he thinks it's this. It's all just been rumor and innuendo and people saying, I think it's this and gut feelings. And it's just been a mess. It's been a complete mess. And what back in the day when there, when every sort of right-minded person except me was absolutely certain that these ships were eventually going to this wreckage on the bottom of the ocean, it was considered not that important. It doesn't matter if we have this hubbub of nonsense because the plane will be found and will all be solved and who cares? And I've been saying for eight and a half years that... There's something really problematic about this data. I wouldn't be so sure that you're going to find this plane on the bottom of the ocean. And here's, the, here's why. I think finally, now that it's been nine years and this effort to find the plane on the seabed has really quite obviously failed, I think people are starting to turn their ears a little bit more to the kind of necessary, maybe painfully detailed, but I don't think painfully. I think it's fascinatingly detailed. But let's look at this really carefully to try to figure out how we painted ourselves into this corner and how we can get out. And hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent on a multinational search. This is not just they floated around a, a boat and looked for some debris. This, has there ever been anything like this in the history of you know, a crash? N nothing of this scale. Back in 2009, an Air France plane went miss missing in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and it took several years, and it was a pretty big search. It was the biggest to that time. It's tiny compared to MH370. And I have to tell you, a little part of me dies every time someone accuses me of trying to get rich off of MH370, because if I had one ten-thousandth of the money that they spent on that seabed search, for them just listening to me and saying, hey, I don't think you might find it. And all those people who spent, who said goodbye to their toddlers and went out to sea for six months and came back and their toddlers were now talking and, you know, walking. I mean, it's, it drives me insane, actually. And they went in with good intentions and they worked really hard, I think. I've never complained. I've never criticized their intentions. I've never criticized how smart they are. I mean, I think the Australian authority, I'm not a, another kind of defining characteristic of conspiracy theorists is that they think that the authorities have rigged the whole game and it's all 
all a fraud. I I don't think that at all. I, I have great respect for Inmarsat. I have great in respect for the Australian search authorities. I have great respect for the taxpayers who spent all that money and the people who spent all that time on the ships, risked their lives on those ships and endured like horrific seas, endured big waves and some incredible seabed search technology was used for the first time. I mean, it was an incredible feat of engineering that they were able to scan in photographic detail an area that was three miles deep, the size of Great Britain. I have a tremendous respect for all of that, but it all adds up to nothing if you go into it with a kind of blinded mindset that the data that we have must be good because question mark, why do we, why is the data have to be good? Yeah. So you're saying these, these searchers went in with a set of assumptions that may not have turned out to be right. How do you know that? They went in with a set of assumptions that they never questioned, even after they had failed, I mean, manifestly failed. And I'll explain, I think, in more detail why I really think that they, it wasn't just bad luck, but I think it was actual. To not find something seems like an absence of evidence. There's that sort of famous saying that people love to trot out saying like an absence of evidence, is not evidence of absence. It actually is evidence of absence. If, if you think you left your car keys on the dresser table and you look and it's not on the dresser table, that is evidence of absence. And I think there's evidence of absence of, this, of the plane from the Southern Ocean. It's, it requires a bit of handholding to get there. But it's not impossible. It's not even hard. But we'll but we'll need to do it. It just takes time. The tale needs to be told. Yeah. So, you know, the main question is, why has the search failed? Did they get unlucky? Did they make a mistake? Most people just think they were unlucky. But you are asserting through evidence or through a lack of evidence that they may have searched in the wrong place. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean... I think you have to give me credit. I'll give it to you. For me, at a time when the entire world thought that the that these Inmarsat scientists had done an incredible job of pinpointing, literally pinpointing the location of this plane on the southern seabed, before the search even started, I said, there's a problem in your data and you might not find it. Uh, that was a very lonely position to take in late 2014. And I actually went on international television in early 2015 and said, you've got a problem. And people, and I was ridiculed for it. And I was right. I mean, I, I mean, the tale gets complicated by this by the fact that debris turned up later. But the fact is, this the airplane itself, the fuselage of the plane, everyone thought it was going to be found in the seabed where the Inmarsat scientists said it was going to be. It was not. And I feel like I have I deserve some credit for predicting that correctly at some great risk to my reputation at the time. So I I want to claim that win for myself. I'm convinced. Thank you. No, ding, I, ding, 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 ding. I watched it. I read about it. I went into that that rabbit hole. And I didn't see anything that seemed strikingly wrong with anything that you were suggesting. I mean, to be fair, I did think that the, as though it was of high quality, the, by its nature, the Netflix docu documentary glossed a lot of things over. It, it was a very, it, I mean, they I had to though. They, of course they had to, of course they had to, but they basically, to my mind, they set the table for the discussion that we're having. And I would say that for someone who really wants to understand MA370, this podcast will do that for you. A great intro is to watch that documentary. It's, I think it's very entertaining. It's very well done. It will bring you up to speed to the basics, we'll, which I think we should walk through again. But And there is also my book, The Taking of MA370, which also lays out the details. But I think we should walk through everything piece by piece in this format as well. The other thing I, I, that I like about this format that, it, that appealed to me when we started talking about it is that I do feel like 
MH370 belongs to everybody. And I think I, I just encounter so much organic, legitimate interest about this case from every walk of life. Everybody is interested in it. And it would really warm the cockles of my heart if we could bring in the audience and bring in people who are who care about this and take questions, take suggestions, take insights. I mean, one of the things that was really pleasantly shocking to me in the wake of the show was how people with a lot of very specific technical expertise reached out to me, people who are air traffic controllers, who are familiar with radar systems, who are familiar with avionics, and offered to share their expertise. And I took them up on it. So I would love to somehow either, I, maybe we could patch people in somehow, or we could just, yeah. I think it's a great idea. This should be a collaborative process. It's, we're not necessarily just repeating all the information that's already out there. We're moving the story forward. And that's how we will find an answer, hopefully, because I think there needs to be something that people understand is, is, is coming from these episodes. But there are more twists and turns in this story than any nonfiction story I've ever heard. It's a truly crazy story. Yeah, it's filled with twists and turns. It's got, there, there are so many unexpected twists, stunning revelations, shocking failures. And it really, it, it's almost like it was designed as a, you know, cliffhanger adventure serial. You know, not to make light of what is a tragic event, but as it unfolded in real time, it just kept on shocking the journalists who were tasked with reporting on it. And, and that's why it riveted people's attention for so long. Most plane crashes, and I've covered a lot of them, they kind of have a, a new cycle of a couple of days and then they're gone. MH370 kept on dropping shockers. And what I want to tell the listeners is that we will take you down the road and it, there will become increasing clarity on what might have happened to this plane. Oh, well, it's just, I was just going to say that I, I think that without giving any spoilers, I mean, it's everything from shady characters to shady motives to gigantic blunders to everything from hacking to social issues to international affairs. I mean, like every twist and turn you, you, to, to potential spies and compromised assets. I mean, this stuff, this stuff sounds crazy and it turns out it isn't. I mean, I wouldn't, you don't, you don't even need to go as far as that. I mean, there, there's all kinds of crazy speculation that has been attached to this incident, but I would say just the way it unfolded, just, it just consistently defied expectations. From the, the first disappearance um, to the subsequent discovery that it had been tracked by, by radar and that had been tracked by the satellite company. And, and, and it just at every point, what a trained air accident investigator would expect or would think to be the most likely thing to have happened was inverted, was flipped on its head. And time and again, investigators went down one path and they turned out to be completely wrong. And... Every step of the way, there are surprises. You look at this piece of evidence, you think it's this, it's actually the opposite. And it's just, I have never, I, I've been a journalist for decades now, and I've never encountered a story in which there were just so many naturally emerging shockers. You, you're, you're, you're constantly being surprised by what happens as this story unfolds. So I think it's just the most dramatic kind of made to be a serialized almost adventure story, you know, as it, as, it, as it unfolds. I think it's really important to understand about MH370 that it will subvert your expectations. Time and time again, people will assume something to be true and it will turn out not to be true. And, we, and, and that's something we need to keep an eye out for again and again and again. 
And Mate 370 will surprise you. If you have assumptions and you think it probably has to be this way, you're probably wrong. So buckle in. <laughs> it's a crazy ride. It really is. But it's an important ride. And, you know, we're going to wind up in some crazy places and, and just, you know, prepare yourself. All right, let's, let's, let's take that ride together. So in our next episode, we're going to talk about the vanishing. So we're just going to talk about how this began, what happened 40 minutes after okay. the takeoff from Kuala Lumpur and how it disappeared off the radar. And that's going to be pretty highly technical stuff. I mean, listen, I will, this is my promise to you and to the listener. I will never make it insanely technical. I'm never going to go above anybody's head. Everything is going to be well within the bounds of what any normal person can understand. And I, I might have to introduce some new concepts, but they're not going to be crazy incomprehensible concepts. So the vanishing episode is going to talk about a scenario in which the plane exploded in an in-flight fire and how that may or may not have happened. The, the next one we're going to talk about is the turn back, which is pretty crazy to me, about how the Malaysian military disclosed that the plane did not crash into the South China Sea, but turned left, basically. And that will raise another possibility about hypoxia and the flight crew incapacitation. That's something that is pretty, pretty much people agree that plane turned left, right? I listen, uh, no, people don't. I mean, there is no universally accepted truth about ME370, but I think certainly- Most I people do. Most. For our purposes, I think we're going to concern that we're going to say that the plane, we're going to stipulate that the plane turned left. I think as we go, as we take each step, we'll consider a scenario that, that people think might be valid at that point. And then we're going to see whether we should discard it or not. And I think, and to be blunt, okay. yes, we're going to discard a lot of things. A lot of ideas that people have come up with along the time. I'm still getting emails from people saying, hey, what if it just blew up? I'm like, okay, we did think about that, but it didn't work. The next and most exciting episode to me is called The Final Turn. And that's a major stunning development. It's going to be very interesting. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Deep Dive MH370. We hope you'll join us again as we start to unravel this mystery.